Mark chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, I wanted to tell you a story uh, about, oh, six years ago. My wife and I were, uh, I was, I had just probably uh, started seminary not too long before, and my wife was, uh, was still in probably her last year of college. We were married, and we were driving with my sister. My sister was in town, and we were driving down Beach Boulevard in, uh, in La Habra, California, just up north here near Biola University. And as, we, uh, as we're driving, we come to a, a stoplight. And uh, I pull up, there's three lanes, and I pull up, and I'm in the middle lane, and I, I come to the stoplight, and I stop. And uh, I, I'm looking in my mirrors, just kind of checking, surveying the scene, and I look in my, rear, in my side mirror, and I notice a very small car uh, coming very, very fast in the lane next to me. I had a red light in front of me, and yet there was a green arrow turning left, but yet our, our lane was, was a red light going straight. And this car, which I could see in my left, uh, rear, left side mirror, was accelerating in the left-hand lane, um, intending to go straight and apparently thinking that the, that the light was theirs. And I could tell as I was stopped at the stoplight that this person did not realize that they did not have the right of way. And I remember uh, seeing them accelerate, and I remember just thinking in my head, and I think Casey heard me, I just said, Lord, Lord, Lord. I was just praying for this person as they were going past me at about 45 miles an hour. And sure enough, as they accelerated right through, I, I tried to flip my blinkers on, I tried to honk my horn, and they accelerated right past me. And a person turning from the other lane turned directly into them and crushed this, this, this lady's car. Her car got slammed by the person coming over and she just rolled over to the side across three lanes of Beach Boulevard and, and into uh, some fencing, some residential fencing. Just absolutely crushed. I had a red light. And uh, I remember the light was still red. And yet, instinctively, without hesitation, I stepped on the gas and went traveling after this woman who had been crushed by this car. And my wife, as I was doing it, my wife was yelling at me, No, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? Because the light was red. And yet, I, I, I went through, just instinct, I just went straight through, followed the woman down until her car came to a stop and I got out of the car and I walked up and I, and I checked to see if she was okay. And she was okay. She was bleeding. And I, I, there was a towel in, her, in the back of her seat. Why there was a towel in the back of her seat, the Lord only knows. I believe the Lord provided that for her. And I took the towel and I put it up to her head, which was bleeding. And uh, about ten minutes later, the ambulance came and the lady was rushed to the hospital. And God, God be praised, she was okay. She, she made it. She made it through the crash. And the person who hit her was just fine. I bring this story up not to emphasize the crash. The crash was dramatic and I, to this day I, I just have very vivid memories about it and it was, it was an amazing thing to be a part of and, and to be, have opportunity to help in that situation. I bring this up not to emphasize the crash. I bring this up to emphasize what transpired between me and my wife at the red light. You see, while we were stopped because of law, while we were stopped because of tradition, because of what our nation and what international law has, when you see a red light, you stop. You don't go through it. While we were stopped at that red light, when that car got hit, and when that woman was obviously significantly injured and running off into the fencing to the side, all of a sudden, the red light, the law, the tradition was of very, very little significance. I went through that red light and my wife was like, no, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because she was trying to process this as I was and her instinct was wait until it's green. And my instinct was, 
I don't care that it's red. This woman needs our help right here, right now. I went, I broke the law. I went through the red light, followed the woman, and went to her aid. I broke the law to do good. I broke law and tradition to do a greater good. Friends, in our message today, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verse 6, we are going to be looking at two instances in Jesus' life in which He breaks law, breaks tradition, if you will, to do the greater good. There are times in which law, in which tradition is to be usurped in order to carry out the greater good. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. The title of my message today is Obeying Law at the Expense of Doing Good. Obeying Law at the Expense of Doing Good. And of course, the title of my message is is, uh, is going to be from the viewpoint of the Pharisees. They are people who were obeying law at the expense of doing good. They were going to keep to tradition, to law, to doing the things that their religion had instructed them to do and their oral uh, tradition had instructed them to do at the expense of doing good and withholding good from others and doing what is right. That's what they were doing. And that's what we want to see today. What were the Pharisees doing? What was Jesus doing in this text today? But before we read it, I want to make note of this. In the eyes of the Pharisees, in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus was doing everything wrong. Everything wrong. From their perspective, number one, Jesus had blasphemed by proclaiming to forgive sins. Jesus had blasphemed, had made himself like God by by claiming to forgive sins. Two, Jesus had approved of the lifestyle of the tax collectors and other sinners of society by sharing a meal with them. And three, Jesus and his disciples were lacking in religious piety due to their refusal to pay heed to the fasting practices of the religious elite. Friends, these three vignettes, these three stories that I, that I give a summary statement of behind me are what are preceding our two stories today. And you can see here that this was the perspective of the Pharisees. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a blasphemer. He's doing it wrong. He shouldn't be claiming to forgive sins. When they looked at Jesus, they saw Him as one who approved of tax collectors and sinners. He's sharing a meal with them. In our culture, if you share a meal with them, that means you approve of their lifestyle. He's doing it wrong. And three, third and finally, Jesus and His disciples were, were lacking. They were lacking in religious piety and holiness, in being reverent men of God. Because, why? Because they refused to pay heed to the religious practice of fasting in that culture. Particularly fasting twice a week by the religious elite. In their eyes, Jesus was doing it all wrong. But their assessment of Jesus was entirely incorrect. Their assessment of Jesus was entirely incorrect. And they were blinded to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, God's very messenger to them. The very Messiah. And so we see two final stories in our text today that's going to, in the eyes of the Pharisees, be yet another transgression of Jesus. And yet, Jesus came to show them that there are times in which law, in which tradition, in which what has already previously been established as right and good must be forsaken for the greater good. Take a look at Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, Now it happened that He went, that is Jesus, through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? 
he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the, the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Our second story today, chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they, presumably the Pharisees, watched him closely. Whether Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians with him, with them, against him, excuse me, how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see this day. Give us ears to hear your word. May we see today, Father, that the greater good is so much greater than obeying law and tradition. Father, that doing the greater good, that carrying out what is good and right and pleasing in Your eyes is so much greater than following man's tradition. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 23. It says, Now it happened that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, they said, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Up until this point in Mark 2, as you've been, as we've been going through this together, it's clear that Jesus is being is arousing quite a crowd, isn't he? Jesus is becoming very, very popular. And he had attracted not merely disciples and followers of him, but Jesus had also attracted antagonists. Those who were walking beside him strictly for the purpose of tripping him up. You see, the Pharisees were with Jesus and his disciples in the grain fields, not because they sought to become Jesus' disciples, but because they were looking for every, every instance possible by which they could discredit Jesus, discredit His teaching, discredit His actions. And Mark indicates that the Pharisees were watching Jesus and His disciples very, very closely as they walked through these grain fields. And on their journey... As the disciples were traveling with Jesus through the grain fields, presumably traveling to the synagogue, no less, on the Sabbath, the disciples found themselves hungry and in need. And they reached down as they were traveling through the grain fields and they began to pluck heads of grain and to rub it in their hands and to pull what was edible out of it and to eat eat of that grain. Very simple task. They're walking through the grain fields. They're letting their hands stroll through the wheat, if you will, plucking it up and eating it. Rather simple task, you might say. Now, work on the Sabbath. Working. Manual labor on the Sabbath was punishable by death, according to Exodus 31. Punishable by death. One of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath. The Old Testament did not go to great extents, however, to define what constituted work. In other words, when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at Exodus 31, when you look at Exodus 34, and so much of the Levitical law, there's not a 
clear delineation as to what constituted manual labor, what constituted work. Suffice to say that God deemed that the community would know what work was when it was taking place. Let me say that again. The reason why God did not delineate, if you will, in the Old Testament, what work was and what would be constituted as a punishable offense by death on the Sabbath, the reason He didn't go to great lengths to define that is because He knew that His community, the community of Israel, would know full well what was work and what wasn't work on the Sabbath. He didn't need to define it. He didn't need to explain it. And thus we don't have a a deep explanation of what constitutes work on the Sabbath in in the Bible. But interestingly enough, we do have detailed explanations of what constitutes work in the Jewish commentaries, in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, and in so many of the Jewish oral writings, if you will, the, the oral tradition which was put down into, into written word, extra-biblical commentary, if you will, on the Old Testament, on the Torah, the Jews went to great lengths to define what constituted work on the Sabbath. Uh, in one particular instance in the Mishnah, they have 39 indications of what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And so they went to great lengths to identify what was work and what wasn't work. In any event, what the disciples did, walking through the grain fields and plucking the heads of grain, could hardly be construed as work on the Sabbath according to the Old Testament. If it did, we would surely have expected the Pharisees in our story today to have cried foul, to have brought the matter before the entire religious community, and to have said, these men worked on the Sabbath. And yet they don't do that, do they? The Pharisees don't bring the matter before the entire community. They don't take the matter before the the sum of the religious elite. In fact, they only address Jesus on the matter. And the reason they only address Jesus on the matter is because the Pharisees knew full well that the disciples' offense, if any at all, was of a lesser kind of transgression. It was not work on the Sabbath. And yet it did perhaps transgress some of their oral traditions, some of the ways in which they had delineated what might or might not constitute work. And so being somewhat in the middle, they went to Jesus for clarification. They went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, look what your, look what your disciples are doing over there. They're plucking the heads of grain. That's not lawful, is it? The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In essence, what they mean is, Jesus, how come your disciples do not pay heed to our Sabbath regulations? Verse 25, but Jesus said to them, have you not read, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful. Not lawful to eat, except for the priests. And also he gave some to those who were with him. Now before I I get into detail in this story, I want to bring up one little tiny rabbit trail. Just two minutes on this. We should be aware that the story Jesus refers to is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. You can turn there later on and and take a look at the story. You will notice a discrepancy in the account in 1 Samuel 21 with the words of Jesus in Mark 2. The discrepancy is this. While Jesus indicates that David was, uh, was carrying out this, while this narrative was being carried out in the days of Abiathar the high priest, in fact, it's mentioned in 1 Samuel 21 that it was Abiathar's father, Ahimelech, who was in fact the high priest at the time that David came to eat the showbread. Abiathar, his son, is mentioned in the very next chapter and was likely his father's right-hand man and first assistant in the tabernacle at Nob, in the, city of, in the village of Nob. But nevertheless, Ahimelech, according to 1 Samuel 21, and not Abiathar, was the high priest. Now this minor discrepancy is not something 
I say clearly, it's not something that should rock our confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. After all, we should pay attention to the fact that it is Jesus who is the one referencing the story in 1 Samuel 21. If anyone should be familiar with what transpired in the Old Testament, it might be Him. Jesus was most likely drawing attention to the fact that Jesus was most likely drawing attention to Abiathar instead of Ahimelech because Abiathar was one who figured very prominently in David's life. Ahimelech was killed just a day or two after helping David. He was killed by King Saul's men. But it was Abiathar who continued with David, who continued to be David's high priest and who perhaps was the one who even gave David the showbread which David had asked for. And so also, uh, if, you, if you look in, the, in, the, in your Greek, if those of you who know Greek, it says epi-abiathar, which means to say in and around abiathar. Epi is a preposition which can mean in or around or in the days of, if you will. And so the Greek gives us some wiggle room here. Jesus is not making a historical and accurate statement. He's saying in and around the time of Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, in 1 Samuel 21, this is what David did. Alright, I hope that was just two minutes. A little side note, do never lose confidence in the accuracy of Scripture. There's always an answer for the, the subtle things that may seem to be a little bit off color. So uh, I just want to keep our confidence in the Word of God that it is historically accurate and we can have confidence in it. Well, let's not miss the point. Let's not get off on the rabbit trail and miss the point of Jesus' example, of Jesus' illustration. The Pharisees are saying, Look, Jesus, your disciples are plucking grain heads and in our, in our tradition, that's not lawful, is it? Jesus says, what about David? What about what David did in 1 Samuel 21? David, seeking rest and refreshment, seeking the things that the Sabbath, the holy day, was precisely designed to give man, seeking rest and refreshment. When David was seeking these things, he came to the tabernacle at Nob and he turned to the priest. And being in need and in hungry, running from King Saul, he came to the priest and said, do you have anything to eat? I am hungry. I am in need. I need rest. I need refreshment. I need nourishment. The priest told David that all that he had was the holy showbread that had just been replaced with the new showbread on the Sabbath day. And yet still, knowing full well that the Sabbath was designed to give rest and refreshment to mankind, that priest offered David the holy showbread. Something that was only supposed to be for the priests. Jesus' point in referencing this story of David was to defend the action of His disciples by appealing to the infraction of David, one of the most highly regarded Jewish patriarchs. If David did it, Jesus says, in effect, why not the rest of us? If David did it, why not the rest of us? Take a look at verse 27. It says, Jesus says, And He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus suggests quite plainly, quite plainly, that the Sabbath, the day of rest prescribed by God in the Old Testament, was designed, was intended, was created for man's benefit. It was not designed so that man would be enslaved to it. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Uh, now, this side of the cross of Christ, as Christians, we are not beholden to the Old Testament law. Uh, we are not beholden to keep um, the law as such. Although the law is always a tutor and a guide, it is helpful, it is good, it is proper for us to recognize the law as good, and, 
And though we are not obligated to obey law, if you will, to obey the the 614, if you will, Old Testament laws that are stipulated in Scripture, while it's not our obligation, our duty to obey law, nevertheless, law is given for our benefit, for our good. And so when we see the Sabbath here, and when we see the day of rest, and when we consider that that was so important in the mind of God that He put it within the the Decalogue, within the ten most holy commandments that He had for mankind. When we see that God put it up with that much prominence, it would do us good to pay heed to it. It would do us good to pay attention to it. And so I ask you very simply, do you have a day of rest? Do you have a day of rest? Do you have a Sabbath day? Sunday, usually a day in which Christians, uh, if they do, set aside a day for rest and Sabbath refreshment and nourishment and life and peace. Do you have a day of rest? I think it's important that we all pay heed to Sabbath rest. It's not our duty. It's not something we're obligated to do. But I think it would do us well. I mean, look at, the, look at the culture around us. Look at the busyness of the day. It's, it's difficult for many of us to just pause and to set aside one day out of the week to say, Lord, this is the day in which I'm going to pause and rest and worship You. And that is all I'm going to do. Uh, one of my... Uh, Favorite professors at Talbot, named by the name of Don Sanukian. He's a he's a pastor. He's a professor. He's a uh, he preach. He's a, a professor of preaching, professor of homiletics. And uh, as pastors, pastors always kind of working a, a little bit on Sundays. Although most of you don't think I work all that much, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I only work one day a week, right? Um, but pastors, they work on Sunday, right? And so he he sets aside Monday. He says Monday's my day. And he urged all of, his class, all of his students, he says, set aside Monday as your day of rest. And uh, my, Casey and I have, by and large, really tried to do that in our marriage. Monday is our day where we rest and recoup and relax. I try absolutely as best I can not to do any work on Monday. And it is to my benefit. It is proper and it is good that I do that. And I urge you, if it's today, let this day your day of rest. Back to our story. Plucking grain heads. Plucking grain heads to satisfy one's basic need for food was not equivalent to working on the Sabbath. In eating the grain heads, the disciples were receiving bodily nourishment and refreshment, something the Sabbath day was especially designed for. Their actions were not an offense to the law in the slightest. What they did was perfectly in keeping with what God intended for the Sabbath. And to top it off, Jesus says, to top it off, He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Inasmuch as the Pharisees would have never claimed that David transgressed on the Sabbath in 1 Samuel 21, so also Jesus says that He has a kind of authority over the Sabbath that is tantamount, indeed goes beyond David's authority over the Sabbath. This is the second time that Jesus has referred to Himself as the Son of Man in Mark. The other one is in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, where He says, The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And this is the second instance in which He says, Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, by this statement, is, is making a very tremendous statement, not unlike what He said in verse 10 of this same chapter. Make no mistake, this statement in verse 28, like Mark 2.10 before it, was Jesus' way. Was Jesus' way of declaring that He possessed a kind of authority in Himself. A kind of power in Himself that only... God could claim. Only God had the power to forgive sins in verse 10 of chapter 2. Jesus says the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Only God could rightly be called the Lord 
of the Sabbath in Mark 2.28. And yet Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath in 2.28. And so Jesus, in making this claim, is yet again suggesting to His adversaries and to all who are listening that He Himself is God. There are many, many subtle, subtle in our eyes, not subtle in their eyes, subtle in our eyes claims to deity that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 2. And this is yet one more claim to deity. Now Mark, Mark curiously ends the story in chapter 2 without citing the, um, the response of the Pharisees, right? We would expect, like we see in so many other stories, that we would see the Pharisees getting all huffy and puffy, right? They're getting all agitated, if you will, at what Jesus just said. And rightly so, because they would have been agitated at a statement such as that. But Mark saves their response. Mark holds off on that thought just for a moment to bring us and to usher us in to chapter 3. The plot is escalating, friends. And what we're going to see in Mark chapter 3 the end of this story, this final story that we'll look at today, is, what, is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is the story that brings Jesus and the Pharisees to a hedge. Take a look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And Jesus entered the synagogue again. Luke mentions that this was another Sabbath, not the same Sabbath. And so we might, we might assume here that, that, this, that this is a later time, maybe one week later, that Jesus entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they watched Jesus closely, whether He would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Him. Now Jesus comes back into the synagogue. Um, and by the, by the the, the, the direct article, the definite article, we might assume this is the, the, the synagogue in Capernaum. He's going back to the same synagogue that he's been going to from Mark 1 to Mark 3. Same synagogue he preached at in Mark chapter 1. He goes back into that synagogue, and out in the audience, he sees a man with a withered hand. The man must have been probably sitting toward the front, and the Greek word for withered there means that it was stiff or it was paralyzed. He had a stiff hand. He had a paralyzed hand. Also seated in the synagogue were the Pharisees. Mark indicates they had come with the explicit purpose of watching to see what Jesus would do. And Jesus sees the man with the withered hand and He calls out to him. Take a look at verse 3. And He said to the man who had the, the stiff hand, the withered hand, He says, step forward. And then he said to them, presumably the Pharisees, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Jesus says, step forward. Um, it's interesting and, and, and it could be that the man had asked to be healed, but it's interesting that Mark doesn't suggest so. It could be that the Pharisees were kind of uh, nudging the man up to the front and saying, hey, go on up there, see what Jesus does. But the text doesn't say so. Instead, Jesus is the one instigating the action. Jesus is the one initiating the confrontation. Jesus has recognized that the conflict with the Pharisees, the conflict with the old tradition of the day, was a foregone conclusion. He was in conflict with the Pharisees. And he knew that that conflict, it was only a matter of time before that conflict came to a head. And so Jesus instigates the action. He says, come forward to the man with the withered hand. And the man comes forward and stands before Jesus. Stands before the audience. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees. He pauses. He doesn't heal the man immediately. He pauses instead. This is on the Sabbath day. A day in which he's, he's teaching, perhaps in the synagogue. The people have come to listen and to worship and to rest. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and He says to them, Is it lawful? Notice the repeated theme here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? 
on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day. A day designed and created for man's benefit. A day designed and created for rest, for refreshment, for nourishment, for peace, for life. On that day, is it better to obey the traditions of the law or to do what is right and good? Is it better for me to heal your fellow villager? Heal a man you know. Heal a man in your community who right now in his condition with that stiff and paralyzed hand is unable to go to Jerusalem and to enter the temple and to worship there because of his condition. Is it better for me to heal your fellow villager and to restore him whole and to make him and to reinsert him into the community of faith full and complete that he might be a full and complete worshiper at the temple in Jerusalem is it better for me to restore him to that place or is it better for me to withhold that blessing from him what does your law tell you about this Now we should expect, uh, we should expect religious leaders of the day. We should expect religious, the theologians of the day, the pastors of the day, the teachers of the day. We should expect that when asked a question in the synagogue, no less, in the church, no less, it's as if they're in the church, okay? We should expect that those leaders, those teachers, those preachers, those rabbis would give an answer when asked a question about their law. It would be quite odd if we had a, a panel of theologians here at Coast and we brought all the theologians in from, from Biola University and Talbot School of Theology and I brought them all together and, and we began to ask them questions. It would be very odd, don't you think, if the questions that we asked of them regarding the Scriptures, regarding what God has said, if we asked them these questions and they all sat in silence. And they refused to answer our questions. That oddity and that tension that we would have in a moment such as that is the same oddity and tension that is taking place in the synagogue right now. People are looking at the Pharisees and they're saying, how come you're not commenting on this? How come you're not offering an answer here? You're our leaders. You're our preachers. You're our, our pastors, our, our, our religious authorities. And yet you don't speak when asked a question about the very law that you proclaim to be the guardians of? We should expect them to speak. Verse 4, the end of verse 4. But they kept silent. They kept silent. The guardians of Judaism had no word of wisdom, no interpretation, no clarification of the law to offer in response to Jesus' question. Why did they keep silent? Uh, We can only speculate. I would argue it is because that if they answered in the affirmative, if they said, it is better to do good and to save life then they would have had no grounds to condemn Jesus' action. I say that again. If they had answered in the affirmative, if they had said it is better to do good and to save life, then they knew in their hearts that they would have no grounds, no evidence upon which to condemn Jesus' actions. On the other hand, if they had said it is better to withhold doing what is good and instead to allow evil and death to abound, then they would have incurred the disdain of their community, 
of the people around them who were poor, hurting, and afflicted. They offered no answer because the alternatives that Jesus gave them put them in quite a quandary. Whichever way they answered, they did not like the outcome. And so they kept silent. Jesus took their silence as an indication that, it, that indeed their hearts had been hardened. Look what he says in verse five. It says, and when he had looked around at them with ang- and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Verse 5 states that Jesus was, was filled with anger. Orge in Greek, it means wrathful. He had a righteous anger right then and there at their silence. And also it says that Jesus being grieved. That word there is literally to feel sorry for. He looked upon the people. He looked upon the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees no less, and felt sorry for them. The guardians of Israel... And yet they had no answer, no interpretation, no clarification of the very law that they were beholden to. Jesus recognized that his confrontation with the Jewish leaders was a foregone conclusion. And so he turned to the man and he said, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out in the presence of all in the synagogue. And Jesus, with a word, made that man's hand whole. It doesn't say he touched him. It doesn't say anything other than the fact that Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And when it was stretched out, the hand was healed. The stiffness was gone. The paralysis had left him. And it says that he was restored as whole as the other. The hand was restored as whole as the other. That word is significant there. It means that, that he was, not only was his hand restored as whole as the other, but he was restored. He was restored in fullness. He had returned. He had been reintegrated into the community of faith in Judaism. He was now able to go to the temple to offer sacrifice and to worship. He had become a fully restored and whole person. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and they immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy Him. Not having the guts to answer Jesus' question in public. Not having the guts to publicly uh, affirm their answer, if you will. And their answer was quite clearly that they would prefer that he withhold doing what is good. That they would prefer that he instead allow evil and death to abound. But not having the guts to say that answer, the Pharisees left the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they began to plot how they might destroy Jesus. The word destroy there is no less than the word kill. They sought out together how to kill Jesus. Don't lose sight of the tremendous alliance that takes place in verse 6. Mark references in verse 6 that the Pharisees went out and immediately began plotting with the Herodians. The Herodians are precisely who you think they are. They are members of Herod. They They are members of the political family of Herod. They are people who are beholden to King Herod's reign. And throne. They are spies, perhaps, sent out through his government, political spies, sent out through the land. They were spying on John the Baptist, as you will, if you will, know well your Bibles. And now they are spying on Jesus. The Herodians have come and are lying in wait. Perhaps some of them had entered the synagogue because they were, the, the, Herod was a, a Jew in name only, if you will, and perhaps many of his. Many of those zealots who went with him were also Jews. Perhaps they were in the synagogue that very day. And they had come to join hands with the Pharisees 
in plotting against Jesus. Friends, this is an, a most unholy alliance. The Pharisees and the Herodians never got together with one another. Ben Witherington mentions that Jesus was such a threat that even groups not normally allied banded together to do away with Him. It's a very significant alliance in verse 6. The political Herodians, very a-religious, very nominally Jewish, not very concerned with law and temple and worship of Yahweh. And the Pharisees, very religious, very astute in the law, the religious authorities of that day, the political authorities, the religious leaders joining together to combat Jesus. The only reason the Pharisees would have joined hands with the Herodians was if someone posed a threat to both of them. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat to their religious way of life. He had undermined their teaching, their law, their tradition. He had publicly shamed them. The Herodians had heard word from the people in and around Capernaum that Jesus might be the Messiah. The One who would come and reestablish the throne of David. And so Jesus posed a threat to the reign of King Herod. So these groups came together and made a most unholy alliance. Note clearly, on the holiest of days. On a day of rest, on a day designed for refreshment, on a day designed for peace and for life, these two groups plotted death and destruction. What can we learn from our passage today? Uh, what is it about these stories that can possibly apply to our lives in the 21st century? 2,000 years later, uh, they're good stories. We read them and we think, wow, these are great stories about Jesus. And we've learned a lot about the Bible today. But can they apply to our lives? I think they can. I think they can. There are two themes I see here that I really want to convey to us today theme of holiness and the theme of rest. What is holiness and what is rest? First, with holiness, notice clearly, obedience to law and tradition makes us neither holy nor righteous. Such things come only from a heart in tune with Christ. I say clearly that obedience to law and tradition for the sake of law and tradition never make you holy. They never make you righteous. It never makes you pious. Um, we do good works, right? We, we try to do good works. Are you doing good works for the sake of good works? Are you doing good works for the sake of good works? Do you serve Coast Bible Church? Do you serve others in your community? Does, do you serve your family and others because you feel obligated or under duty to do so? If you do, you are not being holy or righteous you might as well not serve. Because what you are doing, in effect, is worthless in the eyes of God. You are being unholy and unrighteous when you approach good works, when you approach holiness from the view of, of duty and obligation. Instead, we serve with a heart in tune with Christ. We serve because we are thinking about Jesus Christ. We serve out of the motivation that Jesus Christ has come and died for us. That great grace and mercy died for us on the cross at Calvary. And we look at that cross and we say, Thank You, Lord, for what You did for me. And everything that I do is in gratefulness to that event that You did for me. That is a heart in tune with Christ. I urge you as you serve Coast and as you serve in other capacities, do so with a heart in tune with Christ or else you will not be holy or righteous in the eyes of God. Secondly, rest. God set aside the Sabbath rest for man's benefit. While Christians are not required to keep the Sabbath, such a practice would certainly benefit us. We'd be foolish to think otherwise. And so I ask you the question, and I want you to ask yourselves, should I set aside a day of rest? Um, I think this is important in our community today. I do. I think that, I think that a, 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 a reassessment of the value of the Sabbath in our church today would be wise of us. I think many of us are tired and worn out. I think many of us are busy beyond belief. 
We are so busy in this culture. And I challenge you and I challenge your family. You and your husband, your kids. You know, go home and, and talk with your family. Should we set aside a day of rest? A day in which we do nothing but worship the Lord. Rest, refresh, have peace with one another. And don't even think about work. Don't even think about it. That's what God designed for the Jews. I submit to you that it's also beneficial for us today. Holiness and rest. These are the things that we can take with us from our study today. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that we are only holy insofar as we are relying on Your Son, Jesus Christ. All of our good works, all of our good... Father, they amount to nothing if done for the sake of law or tradition. Father, may we be inspired to serve because we are looking at the cross of Christ. That is our motivation. We intend to imitate the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, one filled with grace, filled with truth. That is our motivation for service, Father. I pray that You would impress upon our hearts never to serve out of obligation, whether it's a wana or child care or, 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 or the small groups we're part of or, or mops or, or any other ministry that we, that we participate in. It is not our duty. It is our joy. It is our opportunity to say thank You, Lord, for what You've done for us in Christ. And Father, I pray that You'd give us rest. Father, we need rest in this community today. Uh, we live in a world that is, that is busy. That, uh, as, as one said last week, if, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll, he will make you busy. And Lord, we confess that we are often so busy we don't even have time to think or consider you. Consider rest and refreshment and worshiping you. I pray, Lord, that if it be appropriate that the families in this church would set aside a day in which to rest to be refreshed and to be nourished, to restore our spirits. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its truth today. I pray that You would guide us and teach us always through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.